Radiolab is supported by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, exercising, cleaning. What if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com, Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. You're listening listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. Very good to actually be back here talking to you. Yes, it's been, it's been a while. Been, yes, where have you? Tell, tell those people who might have missed what you were doing what you've been doing. So they will uh, we not just, miss it. We just finished our first spin-off. mini season of our first spinoff called More Perfect. When, when are you going to have part two? I Part two is uh, coming soon. <laughs> I don't know. Not, not tomorrow. <laughs> okay. But, 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 but not long because we – yeah, there's, there, there are definitely stories to tell for sure. And, you, you know, and uh, if, you, if you haven't checked it out, check it out at radiolab.org slash moreperfect. We're really proud of it. And so well, this, let me rescue you from this awkward situation by bringing you back <laughs> to Radiolab, where I will, I'd like to begin by building a, 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 a tall, dark, dense, green forest. Imagine huh. towering trees to your left and okay. to your right. And I, yeah. I need um, a bird, not a lot of birds, actually, and a little wind. So just you give mean me some like birds. sound? Sound, yeah. Birds, please. Birds. Why? Did like we haven't even started this? What do you? Why? Like this is this is what you do? You give me like I want wind, birds. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not like your sound puppet here. Uh, <laughs> but I can't. How do I? All right. Never mind. This story. You'll get your sound at some point. Begins <laughs> <laughs> with a woman, or at, at the time actually, she was a very little girl who loved the outdoors, and I mean. Really love the outdoors. <laughs> when I was a little kid, I would be in the forest and I just eat the forest floor. And I know lots of kids do that, but I was especially. Did you mean you got down on all fours and just? Yeah, I would just eat the dirt. This is Suzanne Samard. And so my mom always talks about how she had to constantly be giving me worm medicine because I was, I always had worms. <laughs> She's a forestry professor at the University of British Columbia, and might as well start the story back when she was a little girl. Well, when I was a kid, um, I grew up in the rainforests of British Columbia, and my family spent every summer um, in the forest. And her family included a dog named Jiggs. And so in this particular summer when the event with Jiggs happened... um, What kind of dog is Jiggs, by the way? um, He was not a wiener dog. He was a... What was he? (laughs) Uh, You don't know what your dog was? (laughs) Not a basset hound, but oh. um, he was a beagle. Beagle. Yeah. He was a curious dog. 
And on this particular day, she's with the whole family. They're all out in the forest. It was summertime. And Jiggs, at some point, just runs off into the woods, just maybe to chase a rabbit, whatever. A couple minutes go by. And all of a sudden, we could hear this barking and yelping. And we were all like, oh, my goodness, Jiggs is in trouble. And so the whole family and uncles and aunts and cousins, we all rush up there. So they follow the sound of the barking, and it leads them to an outhouse. And when they go in... There is Jiggs at the bottom of the outhouse, probably six feet down, at the bottom of the outhouse pit. Oh, dear. Where we've all been, you know, doing our daily business. (laughs) Yeah. He'd fallen in. He's looking up at us, quite scared and very unhappy that he was covered in... um, Oh. And toilet paper. And, of course, we had to get Jiggs out. I mean, Jiggs was part of the family. (laughs) Yes. And... Since he was so deep down in there? We had to dig from the sides. To sort of, like, widen the hole. Basically expanding it from a kind of a column of a pit to something that's... We could actually grab onto his front legs and pull him out. And so we're digging away... And Jiggs was, you know, looking up with his paws, you know, and looking at us, waiting. And they're digging and digging and digging. And then all of a sudden, she says she looks down into the ground and she notices that all around them where the soil has been cleared away, there are roots upon roots upon roots in this thick, crazy tangle. We're sitting on the exposed root system, which is like, it is like a mat. It's it's like... Um, It's just a massive mat of intertwining exposed roots that you could walk across and never fall through. She says it was like this moment where she realizes, oh my God, there's this whole other world right beneath my feet. Jiggs had provided this incredible window for me, you know, in this digging escapade to see how many different colors they were, how many different shapes there were, that they were so intertwined, as abundant as what was going on above ground. It was magic for me. Well, what, so what's the end of the story? Did Jiggs, um, did Jiggs emerge? Jiggs and... emerged. We pulled Jiggs out and we threw him in the lake with a great deal of yelping and cursing and swearing and Jiggs was cleaned off. But that day with the roots is the day that she began thinking about the forest that exists underneath the forest. And now, if you fast forward roughly 30 years, she then makes a discovery that I find kind of of amazing. She's working in the timber industry at the time. This is, by the way, what her entire family had done, her dad and her grandparents. And when I came on the scene in the 1980s as a forester, we were into industrial, large-scale clear-cutting in Western Canada. Huge machines, loaders and cats. She says a timber company would move in and clear-cut an entire patch of forest and then plant some new trees. And, you know, my job was to track how these new plantations would grow. And she says she began to notice things that, you know, one wouldn't really expect, like trees of different species are supposed to fight each other for sunshine, right? When yeah. You've heard that. Yeah, absolutely. And they have to, They you know, shade each other out. They shade each other and they fierce, you know, they, they push each other away so they can get to the sky. But she was noticing that in a little patch of forest that she was studying, if she had, say, a birch tree next to a fir tree, and if she took out the birch... The Douglas fir became diseased and, and died. There was some kind of benefit from the birch to the fir. There was a healthier community when they were mixed, and I wanted to figure out why. 
Well, of course, there could be a whole, any number of reasons why, you know, one tree is affected by another. But she had a kind of, maybe you'd call it a, a, a Jigsian recollection. A flashback. Yes, because she knew that scientists had proposed years before that maybe there's an underground economy that exists among trees that we can't see. And she wondered whether that was true. And so I designed this experiment to figure that out. It was a simple little experiment. So here's what she did. She went into the forest, got some trees. Douglas fir, birch, and cedar. And then I would cover them in plastic bags. So I'd seal the plant, the tree, in a plastic bag. And then I would inject um, gas, so tagged with a with an isotope, which is radioactive. So these trees were basically covered with bags that were then filled with radioactive gas. Yeah. Which the trees... Would just suck up through photosynthesis. So now they had the radioactive particles inside their trunks and their branches. We had a Geiger counter out there. As soon as we labeled them, we used the Geiger counter to you know, ran it up and down the trees and we could tell that they were hot. They were boo 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 right? And the idea was she wanted to know, like, once the radioactive particles were in the tree, what happens next? Would, would they stay in the tree or would they go down to the roots? And then what happens? And what she discovered is that all these trees, all these trees that were of totally different species, were sharing their food underground. Like, if you put a food into one tree over here, it would end up in another tree maybe 30 feet away over there, and then a third tree over here, and then a fourth tree over there, and a fifth tree over there, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, all in all, turns out one tree was connected to 47 other trees all around it. It was like, it was like a huge network. And we were able to map the network. And what we found was that the trees that were the biggest and the oldest were the most highly connected. And so we, you know, we've identified these as kind of like hubs in the network. And when you look at the map, what you see are circles, sprouting lines, and then connecting to other circles, also sprouting lines. And it begins to look a lot like an airline flight map, but, e but even more dense. It's just this incredible communications network that, you know, people had no idea about in the past because we couldn't, didn't know how to look. It's definitely crazy. I mean, you're out there in the forest and you see all these trees and you think they're individuals just like animals, right? Mm. But no, they're all linked to each other. This is Jennifer Fraser. She's a science writer. And I write a blog called The Artful Amoeba at Scientific American. I like your title. Thank you. I spoke to her with our producer, Latif Nasser, and she told us that this, this network has developed a kind of a nice punny sort of name. The Wood Wide Web. The what? The Wood Wide Web. <laughs> you mean like the World Wide Web, but it's not the Wood Wide Web? It sounds a little yeah, like yeah, Elmer yeah. Fudd. The Wood Wide Web. Yep. So this wood wide web, is this just like the roots, like what she saw in the outhouse? No, 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 no. It's far more exciting than that and sophisticated and interesting and astonishing. <laughs> what? <laughs> no, it really is. It involves a completely separate organism I haven't mentioned yet. I mean, this is going places. What creature? Where are we going? We, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to just go there. I'm, Come on. We, we, we went and looked for ourselves. I don't know where you were that day. Annie McEwen, Stephanie Tam, our intern. <laughs> Annie's our producer. We decided all to go to, to, to check it out for ourselves, this thing I'm not telling you about. We went to the Bronx, to the Botanical Gardens, because we needed That's how help. far you have to travel here in New York to get to actual <laughs> greenery. Actually, the most beautiful green sword New York has. And when we went up there, we, there was this tall man waiting for us. 
an expert. Is that Roy? That is. Roy! His name is Roy Howling. And Roy, by the way, comes out with this strange, it's like a rake. He's got a trowel. But it has like an expandable... Uh, it's a truffle rake. Oh, it's an extent... Oh, listen to that. Oh, that sounds dangerous. And so we're, so we're up there in this, in this old forest with this guy. So there's an oak tree right there. It should have some. And he starts digging with his rake at the base of this tree. He shoves away the leaves. He shoves away the topsoil. Can the tree feel you ripping the roots out like that? I hope not. And so now we're down there. We've pulled out a, uh, a sapling just, root of some sort. It's just getting started. They're called feeder roots. We're carefully examining the roots of this oak tree on our knees with our noses in the ground. And we can't see anything. I mean, I see the dirt. Uh, do you see anything white yet? You see no, anything white and skinny? Like I said, it's early in the season, so. He says something about that's the wrong season. I thought, okay, so this is just stupid. Yeah. But then, finally, you have the lens. He gives us a magnifying glass. You know, one of those little jeweler's glasses, handheld. Have a look there. And he hands it to Annie. Wow. You see it there? Oh yeah. The white. Let me. Can I see? Yeah, go for it. Oh my gosh! I do see them. What do you see? Little white threads attached to the roots, smaller than an eyelash, maybe just a tenth the width of your eyelash, but white, translucent. And hairy, sort of. And while it took us a while to see it, apparently these little threads in the soil... They're everywhere. And when you measure them, like one study we saw found up to seven miles of this little threading... In a pinch of dirt. What? A pinch? Mm Mm-hmm. What is this thing? Is it like, is it a plant? What is it? What kind of creature is this thing? Yes, what is it? This is the fungus. Which, by the way, is definitely not a plant. They're some other kind of category, and for a long time, they were thought of as plants. But now we know, after having looked at their DNA, that fungi are actually very closely related to animals. They're one of our closest relatives, actually. Now, back in the day... This all has a history, of course. When people first began thinking about these things, we're talking in the 1600s, they had no idea what they were or what they did, but ultimately, they figured out that these things were very ancient because if you look at 400 million-year-old fossils of some of the very first plants... You can see, even in the roots of these earliest land plants... You can see those threads. This is a really ancient association... And then later, scientists finally looked at these things under much more powerful microscopes and realized the threads weren't threads, really. They were actually... Tubes. Hollow. These little tubes. Tubes? Tubes. And the tubes branch, and sometimes they reconnect. So there seemed to be, under the ground, this fungal freeway system connecting one tree to the next, to the next, to the next. People speculated about this, but no one had actually proved it in nature in the woods until Suzanne shows up. And there was a lot of skepticism at the time, but over the next two decades, we did experiment after experiment after experiment that verified that story. Wait a second, wait a second. What is this, why is this network even there? Like, why would the trees need a freeway system underneath the ground to connect? And why would the the fungi want to make this network? Why are they going to this trouble of creating this big network? Yeah. Well, They do it because the tree has something the fungus needs, and the fungus has something the tree needs. Let me just back up for a second so that you can can, to set the scene for you. Yeah. 
When you go into a forest, you see a tree, a tall tree. So what does the tree do? What's its job? What's its job? It soaks in sunshine, takes the CO2 out of the air, carbon dioxide, which has, of course, carbon C in it. The oxygen? Yeah, and it keeps the C. Carbon, which is science speak for food. It turns that carbon into sugar, which it uses to make its trunk and its branches. Anything thick you see on a tree is just basically air made into stuff. Carbon and sugar are the same thing? Yeah, you can think of carbon as basically the sugar that builds the tree. However, if that's all they had was carbon, it would only be this tall. <laughs> oh, That's Roy again. He's holding his hand maybe a foot off the ground. It would be a teeny tree. It would be smaller. So if all a tree could do is get carbon from the air, you'd have a tree the size of a tulip, a floppy tulip. Huh. A tree needs something else. And what a tree needs are minerals. Minerals from the soil. Very similar to the sorts of vitamins and minerals that humans need. What kind of minerals does a tree need? Like nitrogen and phosphorus. Magnesium. Potassium and calcium. and Copper. Why? What do these do for the tree? Like, can a tree stand up straight without minerals or can... It can't. <laughs> no. They, they can't? No. So, for example, lignin is important for making a tree stand up straight. And lignin is full of nitrogen. But also um, uh, compounds like nitrogen is important in DNA, right? It's an I- integral part of DNA. It's oh, so this inter- is like crucial. If I want to be a healthy tree and reach for the sky, then I need, I need rocks in me somehow, liquid you, rocks. You do. You need the nutrients that are in the soil. And that's where the fungus comes in. The fungus has this incredible network of tubes that it's able to send out through the soil and draw up water and mineral nutrients that the tree needs. Wait, I thought I thought tree roots just sort of did. Like I thought I always imagined tree roots were kind of like straws. Like the tree was like already doing that stuff by itself, but it's the fungus that's doing that stuff? Yes, in a lot of cases it is the fungus because tree roots and a lot of plant roots are not actually very good at doing what you think they're doing. She says the tree can only suck up what it needs through these you know, mostly through the teeny tips of its roots, and that's not enough bandwidth. Wait, so, okay, so the fungus is giving the tree the minerals. Yeah. What is the tree giving back to the fungus? Remember I told you how trees make sugar? Yeah. So that's what the tree gives the fungus, sugar. The fungi need sugar to build their bodies the same way that we use our food to build our bodies. They can't photosynthesize. They can't take up CO2. And so they have this trading system with trees. She says what will happen under the ground is that the fungal tubes will stretch up toward the tree roots And then they'll tell the tree... With their chemical language, I'm in the neighborhood, Um, can you, will you um, soften your roots so that I can invade your root system? And the tree gets the message and it sends a message back and says, yeah, I can do that. Like, I can start softening up my cell walls and uh, and make room for you. And then those little tubes will wrap themselves into place. It's a little white thread. You can see the white stuff is the fungus. And we saw this in the Bronx, the, the little threads just wrapping themselves around the tree roots. The last kind of part of the root, and tangled just around the edge. Okay. And it's in that little space between them that they make the exchange. What exchange would that be, Robert? That would be sugar, minerals, 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 and so on. <laughs> what? I forgot to ask you something okay. important. Yes. Um... If the if the tube system is giving the trees the minerals, how is it getting it, the minerals? How's it getting the minerals? Is it just pulling it from the soil? Oh, well, that's a miracle. That's like, that is, I got to say, doing this story, like this is the part that knocked me 
silly. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Ricardo from beautiful Monroe, New York. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is supported by Zbiotics. If you've been looking for some help waking up refreshed after a fun night out, Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is a genetically engineered probiotic invented by scientists to help tackle rough mornings after drinking. This probiotic is the first drink of the night for a better tomorrow, as it works to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash Radiolab to get 15% off your first order when you use Radiolab at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. If you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash Radiolab and use the code Radiolab at checkout for 15% off. Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. And uh, yeah, so wait, what was the what was the answer to my question about how how does the fungus get the minerals? Oh, it's a it's a three pronged answer. <laughs> what a fungus does is it it hunts, it mines, it fishes, and it strangles. What? How the hell? I, I'm not making this up. In 1997, a couple of scientists wrote a paper which describes how fungi have developed a system. For mining. Jennifer says that what the tubes do is they worm their way back and forth through the soil until they bump into some pebbles. These little soil particles. Packets of minerals. And then they secrete acid. And these acids come out and they start to dissolve the rock. It's like they're drilling. And the fungus actually builds a tunnel inside the rock. <laughs> and it can reach these little packets of minerals and mine them. What? If you look at these particles under the microscope, you can see the little tunnels. They curve, sometimes they branch. They look just like mining tunnels. This is very like if you had a little helmet with a light on it, like a, a human. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not with a helmet, but yeah. It's like Snow White and the Seven Tubes or something. Wow. And that's just the beginning. Jennifer told Latif and I about another role that these fungi play. And that's hunter. Hunter? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Like the plant is hunting? Oh, no. hunting for water. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fungus no, is No, 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 the fungus is hunting. The fungus hunter. What, what, how do you mean? How do you mean? So there are these little insects that lives in the soil, these just adorable little creatures called springtails. They're sort of flea-sized, and they spend lots of time munching leaves on the forest floor. They're called springtails because a lot of them have a little organ on the back that they actually can kind of like deploy and suddenly, boing, they spring way up high in the air. In the David Attenborough version, if you want to look on YouTube, he, he actually takes a nail, this pin, 
give you an idea. And he pokes it at this little springtail, and the springtail goes, <laughs> and you don't see it anywhere. It's just gone into the air. Then, of course, because it's the BBC, they take a picture of it. It's doing like a triple double axle backflip <laughs> or something into the sky. It's the equivalent of a human being jumping over the Eiffel Tower. Anyhow. One of the things they eat is fungus. But then, scientists did an experiment where they gave some springtails some fungus to eat. They sort of put them all together in a dish, and then they walked away. And then they came back. And they found that most of the springtails were dead. Instead of eating the fungus, it turns out the fungus ate them. In the little springtail bodies, there were little tubes growing inside them. What? And this is what makes it even more gruesome. They somehow have a dye, and don't ask me how they know this or how they figured it out, but they have a little stain that they can put on the springtails to tell if they're alive or dead. When they did this, they saw that a lot of the springtails that had the tubes inside them were still alive. Oh, that's cruel. Yes. The fungus were literally sucking the nitrogen out of the springtails, and it was too late to get away. No blink anymore. And then they did experiments with the same fungus that I'm telling you about that was capturing the springtails, and they hooked it up to a tree. To try to calculate how much springtail nitrogen is traveling back to the tree. Well, 25% of it ended up in the trees. <gasps> So they figured out who paid for the murder. Right. The trees mm-hmm. did. Yeah. Yes. Is there anyone whose job it is to draw little chalk outlines around the spring tail? <laughs> <laughs> Inspector Tail is his name. He's the only spring tail with a trench coat and a, and a fedora. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I have even I can go better than even that. Huh. There's they have found salmon in tree rings, like as in the fish. In the tree? In the tree. Well, in a way. How the hell? Apparently, bears park themselves in places and grab fish out of the water and then, you know, take a bite and then throw the carcass down on the ground. The fungi, you know, after it's rained and snowed and the carcass has seeped down into the soil a bit, the fungi then go and they drink the salmon carcass down and then send it off to the tree. Oh, fuck and off. the tree has that's evidence of its bananas. salmon consumption. I was like, floor. Wow, that's insane. Salmon rings in trees. That's insane. And look, and, and beyond that, there are forests. There are trees that the scientists have found where up to 75% of the nitrogen in the tree turns out to be fish food. From just bears throwing fish on the ground? <laughs> yeah, so the, you, if you would take away the fish, the, the trees would be like blitzed, hobbled, really. <laughs> <laughs> and, in, in, and is it as dramatic in the opposite direction? Like the fungus seem to be giving the, the, the trees a lot of minerals. Like from the tree's perspective, how much of their sugar are they giving to the fungus? Ah, so well, I asked Suzanne about that. Like 2% or 0.0000001% or? No, um, well, people have been measuring this in different forests and ecosystems around the world, and the estimate is anywhere from 20 to 80% will go into <laughs> the <laughs> below ground. What? Yeah, <laughs> 20 to 80%. Oh, the tree's sugar goes down to the mushroom team? Into the roots and then into the microbial community, which includes the mushroom team, yeah. The point here is that the scale of this is so vast. And we didn't know this until very, very recently. You have a forest, you have mushrooms. Now it turns out that they're networked, and together they're capable of doing things, of behaviors, forestrial behaviors that are deeply new. We're just learning about them now, and they're so interesting. Just for example, 
let's say it's times are good, the tree has a lot of sugar, I don't really need it all right now, I'll put it down in my fungi, and then when times are hard, that fungi will give me my sugar back, and I can start growing again. What do you mean it's the like fungi a, will give me my like sugar back? It's like a bank? It's like a savings <laughs> like it account? It is like a bank. She says we now know the trees give each other loans? Oh yeah, back and forth, seasonally. They can also send warning signals through the fungus. Yeah, so we've done experiments and other people in different labs around the world, they've been able to figure out that if a tree's injured, it'll cry out in a kind of chemical way. And those chemicals will then move through the network and warn neighboring trees or seedlings that something bad is happening. I'm I'm under attack. There's an enemy in the midst. So if a beetle were to invade the forest, the trees tell the next tree over, here come the yeah. like Paul Revere, sort of? Yes, that seems to be what's, what happens. So you can you can see this as like a game of telephone. One tree goes, uh-oh, and the next one goes, uh-oh, and, they, uh-oh, and then they do stuff. They start producing chemicals that taste really bad. So the beetles don't want to eat them. We go, ugh, I don't want that. One of the spookiest examples of this, as Suzanne mentioned, is an experiment that she and her team did where they discovered that if a forest is warming up, which is happening all over the world, temperatures are rising, you have trees in this forest that are hurting. They don't do well in warm temperatures, and their needles turn all sickly yellow. They will send out a, oh, no, this is not so good signal through the network. But also... The other important thing we figured out is that as those trees are injured and dying, they'll dump their carbon into their neighbors. So so carbon will move from that dying tree, so its resources, its legacy will move into the mycorrhizal network, into neighboring trees. Oh, so it says to the newer, the healthier trees, here's my food, take it, it's yours. (laughs) Or it could be like, okay... I'm not doing so well, so I'm going to hide this down here in my mycelium. Okay, I don't know if you're a bank or if you're a... So it's not necessarily (laughs) saying, give it to the new guy. Well, we don't know. I mean, again, it's a tree. It doesn't (laughs) I know, I know. I'm just trying to say, make sure I understand this. I realize that none of these conversations are actually spoken. (laughs) Give it to the new guy. (laughs) Give it to the new... Well, that's what she's saying. Yes, yes. Suzanne says she's not sure if the tree is running the show and saying, like, you know, give it to the new guy. Or maybe it's the fungus under the ground. It's kind of like a broker and decides who gets what. You know, I don't completely understand. She says one of the weirdest parts of this, though, is when sick trees give up their food, the food doesn't usually go to their kids or even to trees of the same species. What the team found is the food ends up very often with trees that are new in the forest and better at surviving global warming. It's as if the individual trees were somehow thinking ahead to the needs of the whole forest. So we know that Douglas fir will take, a dying Douglas fir will send carbon to neighboring ponderosa pine. Um, and so why is that? Like, so, and I think that, you know, the whole forest then, there's an intelligence there that's beyond just the species. Wait a second, you know, wait a second, you just used... A very interesting word. I know. Robert, I have to, you know what? It's 10 o'clock and I oh. have to go. I, oh, this all is right. getting so interesting, but I have Unfortunately, right at that point, Suzanne basically ran off to another meeting. But. Hello, Suzanne speaking. Oh, there Hello. you are. Hi. Hi, Robert. Hi. We did so catch up with her a few weeks later. When we last left off, I'm just saying, you just said intelligence. Now, isn't. Doesn't, don't professors begin to start falling out of chairs when that word gets used regarding plants? Yes, we don't normally ascribe intelligence to plants. <laughs> um, and plants are not thought to have 
brains, but when we look at the below ground structure, it looks so much like a brain physically. And now that we're starting to understand how it works, we're going, wow, there's so many parallels. I do find it magical. I think there is something like a nervous system in the forest because it's the same sort of large network of nodes sending signals to one another. It's almost as if the forest is acting as an organism itself. You know, they talk about how honeybee colonies are sort of superorganisms because each individual bee is sort of acting like it's a cell in a larger body. Once you understand that the trees are all connected to each other, they're all signaling each other, sending food and resources to each other, it has the feel, the flavor of something very similar. Special thanks to Dr. Teresa Ryan of the University of British Columbia uh, Faculty of Forestry, to our intern Stephanie Tam, Roy Halling of the New York Botanical Garden, to Stevenson Swanson there, and to Annie McEwen and Brenna Farrell, who both produced this piece. Thank you. All right, Coach. Okay, it's time time for us to go and yeah. and, um, and lie down on the soft forest floor. Yeah, and may hopefully not be liquefied by the fungus <laughs> beneath us. <laughs> Final thought. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. I'm Robert Krolwich. I'm Jad Abumrad. The Radio Lab. Thanks for listening. Start of message. This is Roy Holling, researcher specializing in fungi at the New York Botanical Garden. This is Jennifer Fraser, and I'm a freelance science writer and blogger of the Artful Amoeba at Scientific American. Radio Lab is produced by Jad. Abumrad. By Jad Abumrad. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Soren Wheeler is senior editor. Jimmy York is our senior producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Brenna Farrell, David Gebel, Matt Kielty, Robert Krowich, Annie McEwen, Andy Mills, Latif Nasser, Melissa O'Donnell, Kelsey Paget, Ariane Wack, and Molly Webster. With help from Alexandra Lee Young, Jackson Roach, and Charu Sinha. Our fact checkers are Eva Dasher and Michelle Harris. And remember, if you're a springtail, don't talk to strange mushrooms. Actually, that's good advice for anyone. Thank you. Bye. End of message. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off.